All right, Nick, so it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN, and we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. All right, so we are back today with part two of our unfortunate but fortunate series on surgical injuries, and today we're going to talk bowel and ureteral injury. Um, so last time we talked bladder, today we're going to talk maybe what sounds more like the scary stuff, truthfully. So Faye, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, so today, just like you said, Nick, we're going to discuss the prevention and management of bowel injuries, and we're also going to discuss the prevention and management of ureteral injuries. Um, and for those of you who are interested in bladder injuries, go back and listen to our episode from last time. All right, so let's start off with the dreaded bowel injuries, Nick. Um, so talk to me about, you know, first of all, how do we prevent this? And then what happens if, it, if we get one? Yeah, so enterotomies or small intestine injury and then colotomies or large intestine injury, definitely not a fun one if there is such a thing as a fun injury. Um, but in terms of prevention, you know, we talked last time that anatomy is really important, but many times with bowel injuries, these are inadvertent. It's the result of an adhesion that kind of tacked up some bowel. And even if you knew your anatomy, it's like, the fact that that adhesion was there was not going to be something that you could know necessarily in advance. So surgical technique is really the crucial piece of trying to prevent bowel injury in these circumstances. Adhesions can hide bowel quite well. So, you know, when you're entering the peritoneum, you can have like a bowel loop adherent to the anterior abdominal wall, um, or you can have endometriosis that leads to scarring and adhesions or direct kind of impact on the bowel, all of these things can kind of scar it up and make injuries um, more likely to occur. When you're breaking down adhesions, principle of surgery-wise, no, you want to be using gentle but controlled traction and counter-traction on those bowel loops and other areas. And really here, sharp, cold dissection is the preferential way to go. Use Metzenbaum scissors or a scalpel to kind of help take those down gently bit by bit, and again, using that traction and counter-traction. Blunt dissection here is really not encouraged. You know, the bowel is fragile stuff, and so if you're just trying to like pull and tear through it, you may just tear through the bowel itself. 
Kind of exception to this is when you have some of those like translucent adhesions, you know, some of those things that are a little opaque um, and stuck together. You can do things like rubbing your thumb and index finger kind of back and forth on that tissue to help loosen it up. Um, and then once you kind of get that adhesion window better seen, switch back to your sharp dissection. Um, so that way you can be really precise about how you're cutting down that adhesive stuff. This can be a really long process in some surgeries. You know, I think about um, the folks who are oncologists going into these super complex abdomens um, or our major GYN surgeons that are dealing with bad endo and other things like that. And they probably will tell you better than I can, patience is really key. Um, and sometimes really the better part of valor is to not be afraid to move to another area if you're not making progress in one spot. You know, maybe say like, huh, we've been at this for a while and not making progress. Let's switch to our attention to over here and see if we can't make any better progress in taking down this adhesive stuff on this side. Now, Faye, another kind of prevention or really not necessarily prevention, but identifying injury um, is a technique called running the bowel. Have you done this before? Yeah, so uh, definitely did it uh, during laparoscopic surgeries when I was in residency. And, you know, for some of our residents, you've probably heard of this before. Um, and for those of you that haven't, we're going to kind of describe it a little bit because, you know, how exactly do you do it, right? Um, so most of the time we're talking about running the bowel, we're talking about the small intestine. So the way to do this is we are going to start at the ligament of traits. This is a band of tissue that extends from the diaphragm to the duodeno-dejunal flexure. So up pretty high, close to T12 and posteriorly. So remember again that that duodenum is largely retroperitoneal. So you're going to start up pretty high and then hand over hand, or sometimes what we'll do is they'll use, you know, the bowel graspers and laparoscopic surgery. You're going to move down the bowel and inspect each section for injury or for perforation. So you'll start in the jejunum, move to the ilium of the small intestine, and there's really no landmark to distinguish these two, but the ilium can feel thinner and the lumen is somewhat smaller than the jejunum. And then for running the small intestine, you're going to end at the iliocolic junction, which is going to be denoted by the appendix. So you're going to be able to see that small appendix that's kind of going off to the side, and that's how you know when to stop. The large intestine is also distinguished by the epiploic appendages, which are these outpouchings of the colonic wall or hostra, and three large muscular bands, um, also known as the tinea coli. And so you can also inspect the large intestine if you would like for injury if you suspect that there is a large intestine injury. So really running the bowel, basically starting up really high as far as you can go up, and then kind of just inspecting it as you go. All right, so now that we've kind of talked about how to hopefully prevent injury and also running the bowel to look for injury, now let's say, you know, we've actually found an injury. So Nick, let's talk a little bit about how do we repair that injury, what types of injuries there are. Yeah, so, you know, to start off before we get into, you know, the types of injuries and what we might do, I think one of the things that's critically important that gets tested on, whether you're in the OR with your gyne-oncologists doing these, um, and sometimes maybe even on creaxer boards, is that repair to bowel injuries, again, very critically important, is done perpendicular to the long axis of the bowel. So again, if you are looking at a 
bowel segment in your hand and say like just you're holding in your hand and it's going from you know, the right side to the left side, your repair is going to be up and down on that. So again, perpendicular to the long axis of the bowel. We'll post a photo on the website just in case my words are not kind of making it through your ears and sounding kind of the, the way that it should in your brain. But the danger here is that if you repair parallel to the long axis of the bowel, the bowel lumen actually narrows in that case, and you may ultimately cause an iatrogenic obstruction by repairing the bowel that way. So again, take a look at the website, and remember you're repairing perpendicular to the long axis of the bowel to prevent constriction of the lumen. These serosal injuries are kind of the more superficial, if you will, injuries to the bowel. And if you can see from that serosal injury that the underlying muscle and the mucosa are intact and the serosal injury itself is pretty small, oftentimes this can be left unrepaired as stitching here may just increase complications. Again, risk of constricting the bowel lumen or poking into the mucosa and causing more damage than you should. So again, sometimes if it's just a little bit of like a denuding type of injury, you can just leave it alone. But if your muscle is torn into as well and you have exposed mucosa, so again, you haven't entered the lumen, but it's just kind of that thin stuff and you're like, gosh, that's like kind of outpouching there, then really you do need to perform a repair these muscles of the small intestine provide a lot of integrity to the tissue. And so even if you haven't perforated, that bowel wall may perforate later on without that overlying muscle there. In this case, you're gonna use typically a small tapered needle um, and use a suture we don't use a ton in GYN surgery, um, but most commonly, or what you'll hear about a lot in general surgery is that you're using 3-0 or 4-0 silk. Again, you're going perpendicular to the long axis of the bowel, and then you wanna avoid placing the stitch through the mucosa and into the bowel lumen here. Again, you're just grabbing that serosa and muscular layer and putting that back together, oftentimes with just a couple of interrupted sutures. Now, Faye, one thing that we can see too, unfortunately, are perforating injuries where we actually get into the mucosa of the bowel. Yeah, so these perforating injuries ideally should be repaired immediately to try and limit the contamination of the peritoneal cavity because, again, um, we're doing a surgery that's potentially clean or clean contaminated, but, you know, we definitely know that the contents of the bowel is going to make it a contaminated wound. So antibiotics should also be given to cover anaerobic intestinal flora, and if they haven't already, um, you need to be giving a, tip, a dose of metronidazole is usually what we give. Smaller perforations overall can typically be closed in a two-layer fashion. So um, the inner layer should be an absorbable braided suture. So something like a 3-0 vicryl or polysorb that goes through the full thickness of the bowel. And you need to ensure mucosal approximation for a watertight seal. And again, you want to be repairing perpendicular to the way that the injury has occurred. Um, you also then we'll repair that the outer layer um, with the seromuscular repair as we described above with 3-0 or 4-0 silk. 
Unfortunately, if it's not just a small perforation, if it's a large perforation, then these are actually going to require potentially bowel resection and reanastomosis because what can happen is if you try to repair these super um, big perforations is that you're, all you're going to do is going to cause stricture in the bowel itself. Um, basically, you should consider reanastomosis and resection if it involves more than 50% of the bowel wall circumference, if there are multiple perforations within a short segment of bowel, or if there's vascular compromise to a segment of bowel. And that's when you're going to see that the serosa starts to look dark and dusky, and it fails to pink up even after a few minutes. Um, usually, this is not within the skill set of a generalist OBGYN, certainly not within my skill set as an MFM. So this is when I will you know, call my general surgery or colorectal colleagues to come and help. Um, regardless of the size of injury, so small or large perforations, you really should perform irrigation um, after you have performed the repair so that you can copiously clear out intestinal spillage, particularly if there was a colotomy. Surgery may also advise placement of a Jackson Pratt or a JP drain with spillage occurring um, to monitor for things like leaks at the site of bowel reanastomosis. This is becoming less and less common as there's better evidence that's emerged that drains don't actually tend to alter outcomes. And we're definitely not the experts here in terms of whether or not to keep a JP drain in place or not. So we are definitely going to defer to our surgical colleagues on the indications and necessity of drains, especially if you're calling them in to help you repair that bowel. All right. So, you know, now that we've talked about how to repair some of these injuries, Nick, what about afterwards when the patient is recovering? How do we manage that um, when the patient is in the hospital or going home? Yeah, so there are probably two primary questions that come up. One is about sort of feeding and PO status, and then the other is about need for additional antibiotics. So with respect to feeding, you know, the timing of feeding after a bowel injury and repair, like with the placement of drains, is kind of also controversial. The most recent evidence that we kind of extrapolate out of colorectal surgery suggests that early enteral or PO feeds are feasible and safe. And in these studies, early has generally been defined as sometime within the first 24 hours after surgery. Small injuries that are within the purview of OBGYNs to repair, again, if you're doing sort of those primary repairs or perforations or those serosal oversows, those things do not need to have any feeding restrictions. Those bowels will recover as long as the repair has been done well. Um, Larger injuries, though, where you're going to obtain those general surgery consultations, again, defer overall to your gen surge colleagues because they're the ones that are going to be more up to date on this. But the encouraging thing is that we are starting to see what seems to be more of an embrace of a strategy of early enteral feeds and not holding somebody NPO or on a liquid diet until flatus passes, for instance. The other part is about antibiotic therapy. Now, once upon a time where there was no bowel injury, we'd keep folks on IV antibiotics for a good period of time to try and prevent infection afterwards. Um, but there really hasn't been any benefit shown to this. And so ongoing antibiotic therapy is not indicated. And then routine postoperative imaging studies also are generally not warranted for bowel injuries that get primarily repaired. Um, so again, really after the injury, it kind of is like standard care, Faye, which is kind of nice. All right, let's move on from bowel injuries now and talk about the gynecologist's worst nightmare, the ureteral injury. 
Yeah. So we'll first talk about prevention of ureteral injuries. Um, and again, you know, as we talked about before in our last episode, prevention is really about knowing your anatomy um, and knowing where the ureter runs in some high-risk areas. So some of these areas to really know is one at the pelvic brim, where the ureter crosses the bifurcation of the common iliac artery. And injury here can occur if there's some type of hypogastric artery ligation, for example. So you can kink the ureter or even get the ureter in that ligation. In the pelvis, just below the infundibulopelvic ligament, um, this is where it, the ureter can be injured with an oophrectomy if you don't identify where the ureter runs. And then finally, underneath the uterine artery, and this often courses laterally within one and a half to two centimeters of the uterine artery. And this site of injury is, often occurs in C-sections and, and of course at the time of hysterectomy when you're getting those uterine arteries. From there, the ureter then courses medially and ventrally around the cardinal ligaments to enter the trigone. And this is a high-risk point of injury as well at the time of hysterectomy, um, as well as during urogynecologic surgeries like anterior coporophy and uterosacral ligament suspension. And then, of course, as we know, risk is going to go up with more complex surgeries. And so we need to be particularly aware if there are things like malignancies, large fibroids, adhesive disease, PID, placenta accreta, and uh, cesarean hysterectomies in general, um, vaginal hysterectomies with significant prolapse, and also congenital anomalies. The question then becomes, because I think a lot of times we may ask, well, should we just put in a stent and is that going to help us identify where the ureter is? They can be helpful for identification of the ureters and dissecting around them, but there's actually currently no evidence to say that placing stents necessarily reduce the risk of injury. So they may help you identify uh, an injury certainly once it's happened though. Um, so usually what we'll say is to consider them on a case-by-case -case basis, um, depending on the high-risk procedure. All right, so Nick, you know, now that we've talked about trying to prevent injuries, um, let's say we have some suspicion that there could be a ureteral injury. How do we detect them? Yeah, so I think as people are training, we learn so much to talk about the ureters and to be concerned with the ureters. And part of that is because intraoperative detection of a ureteral injury is going to be so much better ultimately than delayed detection of the injury. Um, Injuries that are immediate and easily detectable in surgery like transection um, are kind of helpful in that we know that we can repair them immediately and go for it right away. But some injuries can be delayed, you know, particularly things like thermal injuries, crush injuries, or overly aggressive dissection that leads to devascularization of the ureter. Um, and so, you know, really, really be careful with operating in the neighborhood of the ureter. Um, and definitely, if you're not sure where it is, call it out. So that way, everybody in the room is able to kind of identify exactly where they are and ensure safety surrounding it. Dye solutions like indigo carmine, methylene blue, and fluorescine provided intraoperatively can help with visualization of ureteral injuries. So either you can have extravasation of dye into the surgical field, and that for you is going to kind of confirm some sort of transection injury intra-abdominally, or on cystoscopy, or if you have a cystotomy and you're looking and fail to see ureteral efflux, this is going to be something that might be more like a crush injury or a kink from a suture somewhere. And so we'll help you kind of on both sides, whether the 
efluxes happening in the abdomen or not happening in the bladder to identify something that's gone wrong with the ureter. Cystoscopy is also really helpful and important with ureteral injuries. When you do a cystoscopy at the end of a case, just you know if you do it routinely at the end of hysterectomy, for instance, you want to see brisk efflux from those ureters. Just little wisps of urine or wisps of dye passage may actually suggest partial occlusion or kinking of the ureter. And so even if you just see only a tiny bit of dye, that's not necessarily a reassuring sign. You want to really make sure it's robust. If you're capable of placing stents or you have a urology or urogynecology consultant who comes in to place stents out of concern for a ureteral injury, the stents help with triage. If the stent passes really easily and dyed urine drips from a stent, if there's concern in that ureter, it's likely just because the easy passage of the stent is that it got kinked somewhere along the way. So in that case, you're going to end up reviewing from above, looking for kind of suture areas where the stents may be kind of tugging on and therefore your ureter kind of getting tugged on. And then after you release that suture, you can cysto again to see if the ureter has improved. If your stents can't pass more than a few centimeters, the likely occurrence is that ligation or transection of the ureter has occurred. Um, and you can even pass if you haven't been able to see dye from above after giving it to the patient IV, you can pass dye through a stent retrograde to help aid in visualization in the abdomen of an injury site. So again, rather than giving it IV and waiting for the kidneys to push out dyed urine, this time you're going up from the bladder in through that stent into a ureter, squirting out some dye there to be able to see that more distal end. The unfortunate thing though, even though we've talked about sort of intraoperative identification, is that 50 to 70% of ureteral injuries in gyne surgery are not actually diagnosed in the acute setting. They're delayed. So delayed recognition of a ureteral injury is important to know. This manifests typically as flank or abdominal pain, anuria or difficulty urinating, sometimes hematuria, urinary ascites that is there that may manifest as peritonitis, and of course, concern for fistula development. So you have a patient that comes back who has copious discharge from the wound or copious discharge from the vagina. That should definitely raise your concern. If there's suspicion for a fistula post-op or for a ureteral injury post-operatively more specifically, the workup is usually performed through a CT scan, something called an IV pilogram. Um, a retrograde pilogram is also acceptable to perform, but I'll say kind of in my modern experience, I think most places now are using the CT IV pilogram. All right, Faye, you're enterprising. Let's talk about repairing the ureter because you're going to do that, right? <laughs> so again, I think, you know, this is definitely that should be done by a consultant like your urologist colleagues, for example. I certainly don't feel comfortable doing this on my own as an MFM. Um, but to kind of describe some of the techniques here, typically uh, the repair technique is going to depend largely on the site and the mechanism of the injury itself. So um, one way of doing this repair is just with um, a stent. So this may be needed alone for some things like crush injuries or other minor damage. Um, some small laceration injuries where less than 50% of the diameter of the ureter has been injured can also be primarily sewn over a stent. Um, and then 
But if there's over 50%, then this is going to require those more um, involved techniques like anastomosis or reimplantation. Um, so to kind of talk about those things, one, another way of repair is through a ureteroneocystotomy. Um, and this is when the ureter is actually re-implanted into a deliberate cystotomy site. So basically re-implanted back into the bladder at a different location. This is usually for distal injury. So when the ureter is potentially injured very close to the bladder itself. And then modifications can be done if additional mobilization is needed. And this includes things like elongating the bladder. And um, you guys may have also heard of something called the psoas hitch, where it's a technique where the bladder is basically hitched up onto the psoas muscle to bring it closer to uh, the ureter in order to make that re-implantation possible. Another way of repair is through a ureteroureterostomy. And this is where you basically put together two ends of the ureter together. And this can be either done ipsilaterally, so two cut ends are brought back together, and this is the most common way. Um, or you can also do what's called a trans ureterostomy. Try saying that three times fast. Um, and this is basically where you are connecting the ureter from one side to the ureter to the other side, creating a, basically a Y-shaped drainage. This is usually for more complex repairs um, that are more proximal, and this is not usually as common. And then the last technique that we'll describe here is called a bore flap. And this is similar in principle to a psoas hitch, but it's a lot more extensive. Basically, what's going to happen is that um, part of the bladder, usually the bladder dome, is essentially flipped outwards and then turned into a tube to basically allow for greater reach to those more proximal um, ureter injuries. And again, you know, I don't expect any of us generalist OBGYNs or people who practice obstetrics to have seen any of these or even participated in any of these during residency. So certainly these are things that our urology colleagues are going to be coming in to do for us. And then post-operative management really should be guided by urology. So stents potentially need to be left in place for healing for a while, usually two to six weeks. Um, and if there's a cystotomy as well, then a Foley catheter should also be left in place, usually between two, uh, seven to 14 days, depending on the extent of the injury. A retrograde pilogram can also be performed at the time of stent removal to demonstrate healed tissue without leaking or stenosis. And then patients should ultimately be followed by urology post-operatively. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode on bowel and ureteral injuries. So let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah, so we started off with bowel injuries. Remember, surgical technique is really crucial in preventing bowel injury, particularly because these often will happen with some sort of adhesive disease. Adhesions can hide the bowel really well, either from prior surgeries or endometriosis or anything else. Remember, when you're breaking down adhesions, the technique is to use traction, counter-traction gently, sharp cold dissection typically with bombs or a scalpel is preferred. Avoid that blunt dissection unless you're putting it between your thumb and index finger and kind of just loosening tissue up over those really translucent adhesions and then coming back to sharp dissection once you can get your window seen. We also talked a little bit about running the bowel. Remember, you're going to start up in the small bowel at the ligament of trites at that duodenal jejunal flexure, um, up high and posteriorly, and then hand over hand move down the bowel until typically you reach the iliocolic junction denoted by the appendix. In terms of 
thinking about the type of injury that you have, first of all, um, it's very critical that in terms of repairing the site of injury, that we repair it perpendicular to the long axis of the bowel to try and prevent strictures. In terms of serosal injuries overall, these should be done with a small tapered needle using 3-0 or 4-0 silk. And then with perforating injuries, these need to be repaired in two layers. Um, smaller perforations can be repaired in this way, usually with 3-0-vicryl or polysorb for that internal layer for full thickness, and then the outer layer done in the same way as with serosal injuries. Larger perforations, unfortunately, are going to need possible bowel resection and reanastomosis, and this is when we need to call in our general um, surgery or our colorectal surgery um, uh, colleagues. If there is full thickness perforating injuries, that these patients are going to need a dose of metronidazole and that um, copious irrigation should be done. Management afterwards suggests that early PO feeding is safe and also ongoing antibiotic therapy and postoperative imaging usually is not warranted. With respect to ureteral injuries, knowing your anatomy again is critically important. The ureter runs in a couple of high-risk areas, and we'll just review those again really quick. At the pelvic brim, crossing the bifurcation of the common iliac artery. In the pelvis, just below the infundibular pelvic ligaments, typically where we take things for oophorectomy. It goes beneath the uterine artery, often coursing just laterally within a centimeter and a half to two centimeters of the vessel. And then it courses from there medially and ventrally around the cardinal ligaments to enter the trigone of the bladder. These latter two are definitely the high point risk of injury for many common gynecologic procedures. The risk of injury is going to go up with more complex surgery. Preoperative stents may be helpful in identifying the ureters and dissecting around them and should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis with high-risk procedures, but there's no evidence to say that stents reduce the risk of ureteral injury. In terms of detection of ureteral injuries, intraoperative detection is much, much better than delayed injury detection. Um, and while injuries that can be caused by transection are easily detected, remember that it's more difficult to detect injuries by thermal injury, crush, or overly aggressively dissecting that leads to devascularization. Some ways to detect these injuries are by things like dye solutions provided intraoperatively. And so if you see extravasation of the dye in the surgical field, that's going to suggest some type of abdominal transection surgery. And then if you fail to see ureteral efflux on cystoscopy, this is going to suggest potentially a crush injury or a kink from a suture. Cystoscopy is going to be really helpful in this case um, because you want to see brisk efflux. If you see wispy passage of dye, again, that could suggest partial occlusion or kinking. And then potentially you may want to pass a stent during a cystoscopy if you are capable or calling in um, your urology colleagues. Stents that pass easily um, and dyed urine drips from the stent, this is likely that ureter of concern is kinked somewhere and that tells us the stent is opening it up for us. And then that's going to need some type of release of the suture. But if the stent can't be passed, then you are more concerned about things like ligation or transection. Um, and then a brief word here is that unfortunately, 50 to 70% of ureteral injuries are not diagnosed in the acute setting. In terms of repair techniques, again, we wouldn't expect anybody who's generalist trained um, and really the vast majority of OBGYNs to be familiar with repair of ureters to be able to do it primarily, 
But you may be asked on examinations in terms of repair techniques and what to remember from these various techniques. Again, they largely depend on the site and mechanism of injury. For minor injuries, stents may be all that's needed. And for some small laceration injuries comprising less than 50% of the ureter's diameter, the injury can actually be primarily sewn over the top of a stent. If it's over 50% of the diameter, though, this typically is going to require reanastomosis or reimplantation. The other techniques that are surgical include ureteroneocystotomy, where the ureter is reimplanted into a deliberate cystotomy site and is typically used for distal injuries. Modification that is common to this is something called a psoas hitch, where the bladder is partially hitched up onto the psoas muscle to bring it a little closer to the ureter. A ureterourethrostomy can also be performed. This is typically ipsilateral, where the two cut ends are brought back together, but can also be done in a contralateral fashion, the so-called transureterourethrostomy, where a Y-shaped drainage is created, basically connecting the ureter to the other side that was uninjured. Finally, for those more proximal injuries as well, you may encounter something called a boari flap, which is similar in principle to that psoas hitch, but turns the bladder into a tube to be able to extend upwards and get greater reach for those more proximal injuries. Post-operative management should be guided by urology. Stents usually be, need to be left in place for healing for a while, usually from two to six weeks. And then, of course, if you have a cystotomy, just like we talked about in a previous episode, a Foley catheter is left for at least a week or two as well. A retrograde pyelogram is going to need to be performed at the time of stent removal to determine that the healed tissue has indeed healed without any leaking or stenosis of the ureter, and patients should continue to be followed by urology post-operatively. All right, Thay, well, I think that does it for this episode, and we're finally out of the way of all of these injuries, so we can move on. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CriegsOverCoffee1, on Instagram and Facebook at CriegsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CriegsOverCoffee, send us some love, and we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show, as well as all of our other episodes, and the Rosh Review Question of the Week, go ahead and go onto our website, www.CriegsOverCoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, or a correction to this, or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, CriegsOverCoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>